Okay, everyone, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, to the Thursday night class this week, Parshas Mishpatim. Um, tonight's class is dedicated in honor of my uncle. It was today. It's Ben Sien, Ben Rubain. My father's twin brother passed away three years ago. Very special and extraordinary, generous person. An unbelievable ability to give endlessly. A very intelligent man. And a very, very, very special human being was always an inspiration for me growing up. And uh, we loved my classes too. So we had a good connection once I started giving classes. This should be the schuss to his very special soul. Um, the shir is dedicated by my father, his twin, who's dedicating it for his brother. Okay. Should be uh, Elias the Shaman and should channel lots of blessings to his entire family, his children, his grandchildren, all my cousins, and uh, to our family, and only good. Should merit to see Mashiach Tzedkenu. Bekarev, Bekarev. Okay. Tonight, we're going to learn, we're going to continue a mimer that I started. I started to teach, um, like I think it was three weeks ago, at my birthday, I we did a class here Thursday night. Maybe it was four weeks ago. I remember. I know we did two weeks Pashas Bishalach. Uh, um, yeah, so maybe it was just uh, uh, three weeks ago. And I told you that I would continue it, uh, but we didn't continue because I wanted to teach a Bishalach this course. This week's Pashas Mishpatim. Last week's Yisrael and Mishpatim, we've already covered all the discourses in the book that we usually learn, which is the Sefer Torah Or. Um, and then next week also, we are free, so to speak, to learn, to continue this mimer. So this week, this, this mimer, I don't plan on finishing it tonight, but let's get deep into the discourse. We'll make a brief review on what we studied last time. And um, yeah, and then and then Pashas Tetzave already. We're back to Torah Or because over there we have a dis discourse that we didn't learn yet. And then there is after that there'll be a few Purim discourses coming up. So we have some exciting things. This is a very very special mimer. I chose. Just give me one second. Looks a little bit off. Oh, it's bothering me. Just give me a second. Uh. When you're close by to something, you can't see if it's crooked. When you go a little further, you can get a sense. Okay, I think I'm a little straighter now in the camera. Okay. So without further further ado, let's go uh, into the discourse. This mimer is found in it's a it's a mimer from the Alter Rebbe Shnei Zalman of Liadi. It's in his Sefer the Siddur. It's not in the book we usually learn. It is in his Siddur Siddur and Dach, put together by his son the Mittler Rebbe. 
So every day in the prayer, we say Mizbullah Saida. It's a special uh, song which comes in the place of giving thank you to God for a miracle. It's perfect that I'm teaching this tonight. Another reason. See, I didn't even I didn't even occur to me. Um, my grandson this week, <clears throat> my oldest grandson is four years old. Beautiful boy ended up in the hospital with a post-COVID kind of a thing that's affecting children. And uh, it was very scary. Sunday, uh, Saturday night, the Matzah Shabbos, he was taken into the hospital. Ended up in the ICU unit for over 24 hours. Thank God they were able to figure it out. And it was a miracle. And Baruch Hashem, he's coming home tonight. So one of the things you you you, you offered a, a special thank you. This is a special kind of a carbon called... Um, there's a sacrifice in the temple which one would bring in special occasions like this when you want to offer when you want to offer thanks to God. It's a thanksgiving offering. And every day in our prayer, we say a psalm. This is Psalm number 100, 100 in Psalms, which is a psalm particularly made for when a person brought this sacrifice. Today's days, we don't have a temple to bring the sacrifice. But Mizmar Lutaida is the thank you that we say in its place. So um, in the, and, and we say it every day during the morning prayers, right after the Baruch Sha'omar uh, passage, we say Mizmar, a song, Lutaida to a song, and the custom is to say it's standing because the Karban was brought standing. And as we mentioned last time, there were four occasions that one brought the Toda. Um, the, the four occasions were that if someone came, came, was ill, someone like an example, someone coming out of the hospital, uh, doesn't mean you had a little cold, but when you were when a person was in a grave situation through an illness, then they would have to bring a carbon toda. It was a, not have to, but it was something that one should do. The other one was when someone came out of prison, and the other one was when someone traveled in over the sea, a sea voyage. And which was considered very dangerous, or when one crossed the wilderness, which again in those days were all these things were very risky. So someone came out of that situation was considered to some degree somewhat of a miracle. And for a miracle, you have to give this special offering of gratitude and thanks. Now, this offering was unique, which I didn't discuss this last time, but this is going to be already in, in today's part that we're going to study. The offering was unique because it was a brought as an as a uh, as an animal. Okay, it was a brought uh, whatever the animal was. I think usually a person would bring. A, you can bring for a carbon toady. I think you could bring an ox, a calf. Um, you can also bring a sheep. I think if I got a, I forgot to look it up, but something like that. But in addition to that, or and it can be male and fe or female, that's true. Now, certain animals have to be only female. Certain animals have to be certain sacrifices to be only male. The Torah is very specific. Carbon toda is a form of carbon shlamim. It's a form. It's a form of a of a peace offering. So it can be done male or female animal. But along with the animal, you would also bring bread. A very unique. Sorry. You would bring loaves of bread. Um, they were 40 loaves of bread, but they were divided as follows. 
30 of them were unleavened bread, matzah bread, and 10 of those breads were leavened bread, chametz. Um, you, we didn't sack, we didn't offer these as a burnt offering on the on the on the on the on the mizbeach on the altar, but rather the owner would eat it. And usually, what people would do is they would make a party, invite their friends and family, and everybody would come participate both in the sacrificial meat, because some of the meat goes home with the owner; don't have to eat in the temple. Some of it go to the priests, the kohen. Others would go home, go home with this fellow. We would have to, you would have to stay in Jerusalem. Because you're now allowed to take sacrificial meat out of Jerusalem. And the guy would make a barbecue, whatever it is, invite friends over. And they would have the breads. And they would eat these breads at a very short time. You could only eat it the day you offered it. And to, and um, the day you offered it and that night. Usually a peace offering, you have an extra day to, to, to eat it. But not this kind of peace offering. It's only that day and the night. And I guess the feelings of gratitude that you felt in the temple have to immediately translate into this feast that one would do with their friends and family. And they would obviously sing and dance and thank God. And it was a very special occasion. And they would eat the breads as well. The leavened breads and the non-leavened breads. Now, the novelty over here is that in the temple, they would bring in chametz, non-leavened, um, they would bring in leavened bread. What was the chiddush of that? Because generally, all meal offerings, all offerings that come from vegetation, which was always meat or sometimes barley, all of them were forbidden to be leavened in the temple. This is the only sacrifice, this and one other, in which we brought into the temple, the only type of offering which was brought into the temple, which was leavened. The bread of the toda of the thank you offering, and also on Shavuot, on the holiday of Shavuos, they would bring a public offering, a peace offering of two sheep with two big loaves of bread, and two and those loaves of bread were again, the verse says, you should leaven them on purpose. They don't qualify if they're not leavened bread. They have to be bread that is leavened, which means it rises and so forth. It's non-kosher la Pesach bread. That's the shrewest offering. And there's only time is that can happen any time of the year when someone has a thank you offering to bring. Obviously, on Pesach, you couldn't bring it because you're not allowed to have chametz. But any other time of the year, when you have a thank you gratitude offering, you would offer, you bring along the chametz breads and also on, on shavuos. That's the only exception when chametz was allowed in the temple. So this mimer is going to deal with that, with the significance of that. Why is it? What is it special? How come in this offering it has to be the leavened bread and all other times it doesn't qualify? So what did we learn? Let's do a little review of what we learned till now. We learned, he began with a Kabbalistic teaching. It says in the writings of the Holy Ari, and I shared with you then, if you, those of you that followed that class, there is a Siddur of the Arizal. So this is a Siddur which has all the mystical um, intentions and uh, permutations of God's names that one should have in mind during prayer. Today's days, it's probably best for most of us not to be busy with these mystical intentions, just to pray simply from the heart. But if you plan on being a big Kabbalist, go ahead. But uh, Hasidic culture does not recommend it. 
It recommends better deep meditation on Hasidic concepts of the davening instead of permutations of God's names, which most of the time we don't really know much what they mean unless one learns a lot of Hasidic understand, a little, a lot of Hasidic discourses. And the Hasidic masters dissuade us from doing this. It's meant for holy tzaddikim. These great tzaddikim were able, are able to do it anyways. But over here it says like this, this, this mizmar is a mizmar neged ima di yitzira. It corresponds to father and mother of the world of Yetzirah. It's some kind of a yichud taking place between father and mother of the world of formation. So we're tapping that level. As I mentioned last time, in, in, um, during the part of davening, which is in the early stage of the prayer, which is the karbonos uh, part of the davening, is the first stage of prayer, those karbonos are um, those karbonos are in the world of Asiya. In other words, it's eliciting spiritual energies, but only in the world of Asiya, in the spiritual realm of our of the of this world. The second part of the prayer, which is Baruch Yomar, which we get into the verses of song, we are being elevated into the higher world, which is the world of formation, and we are. Sorry, I got some. Where is it Driving me nuts. Okay. Sorry. So, in the world of Yetzirah, we're causing this unification of father and mother of the world of Yetzirah. Oh, so in the Psukha de Zimra is where we enter into the higher realm of the world of Yetzirah. Mizmah Lesaida is a unification of two attributes in the world of Yetzirah, which is father and mother of Yetzirah, which is called Chachma and Bina. It's a, that, this Mizmah, we are bringing about this mystical unification of these two attributes. The minor is going to explain what's the relationship of Mizmah Litoda with this particular unification of these two attributes. Now we're going to see later in the Mimer, he's going to mention, interesting, on Shabbos, after Baruch Shiyamar, and we don't say Mizmah Latoda, because you can't offer a Toda on Shabbos, because it's a private sacrifice. And in the temple, they didn't, they weren't allowed to offer private individual sacrifices on Shabbos. So instead on Shabbos, we say Mizmah Shiyamar Shabbos. So in the in mystical interpretation of Mizmah Shiyamar Shabbos, which you say on Shabbos, which is also replacing the Mizmah Latoda, it also says it's a unification between Chachma and Bina. But over there it says, it's Chachma and Bina of Atzilut, of the world of emanation, which is way, way, way above the world of Yetzirah. And he's going to explain, as we're going to see later, that on Shabbos we can reach our prayers, our prayers register much higher, because on Shabbos we are, we're so much more powerful. Our spiritual capacity, we have an extra soul on Shabbos. And therefore, every word we say and all intentions that we have have a potency that it doesn't have during the week. It rises and it hits notes. It's like, a, like a, we're hitting very not high notes on Shabbos. But there's a similarity that in both these prayers, we are unifying these two attributes, Chachma and Bina. It's just that on in the weekday, we're doing it in a lower world, in the world of Yitzira. And on Shabbos, we're doing it in a higher world. So first of all, you have to understand what is the content of this unification that's taking place and what's, relation, what, what's its relationship with this particular mizmar, the Toda mizmar.
So what we learned last time, I'm maybe reviewing a little bit more than I used to reviewing because this was already a few weeks ago that we learned it. And what we learned last time is as follows. He asked, why is it that by a miracle, the way to respond to a miracle is to, is to offer what we generally say thanks. Now, obviously, that we understand. That's no big deal. God did something nice to you. You, you should thank him. But the question over here is, why is the response considered? In Hebrew, the word for thanks is hoida, which hoida also means to admit and to submit, um, which is, the question is, why is that a response to a miracle? Um, what perhaps could have been another response? Praise. Why not praising? Why? Which is a different word in Hebrew. Praising is hallel. Now we do that certain times, like on Pesach, Pesach, because of the miracles that happen, we sing hallel, which is praise to God. Yet, um, on, uh, for an individual miracle that occurs to a person, it doesn't say he says hallel. Instead, he has to do he has to do hoida, he has to give thanks. And in the time of the temple, he offered a thanking and a demission type of a sacrifice. So the idea behind it is as follows. By us understanding the dynamics of a miracle, what's taking place in a miracle? So first let's see what's taking place in the regular realm of nature. And then we'll understand where the miracle is coming from. And the general idea is as follows. Um, nature comes from, obviously God is the, is the, is the one who, designed the world he designed the creation and he designed all the patterns of of nature and uh he set up a system this is a, he programmed this system he, not just he programmed it he created from absolute nothing but he does run the world within a certain continuous um what we might argue as a predictable pattern Right? That's usually the way, that's the study of all the sciences to try to figure out how things work. Now, why are things working that way? Obviously, because the, the designer of the, of the mechanics of creation designed the creation to work in a certain way. Now, that, that type, that obviously being fused and energized and produced by a divine force, but it's a divine force that kind of has systemized itself into a certain design. So the energy of God is kind of not free to be unlimited and boundless and infinite and therefore, you know, do what it wants. It kind of has been patternized, if you might say. It has systemized itself into a pattern. And that's the most, as he explains, the most external, external, external level of the divine, generally associated with the name of Elohim, which the name of Elohim is the name of is the name of nature not of nature it's the name of the divine as the divine is self obviously it's a self-imposed limitation where he self-imposes a limitation on himself to act in a particular systemized way and he doesn't budge from that kind of system that is the name of Elohim but then there is a higher energy of the divine where God is beyond now obviously in the, in the realms of Elohim, we can say already that God has 
Hashem's, Hashem's energy, this life force is contained and operates within the systems of, of nature, which the system of nature includes the obviously most foremost element of, of creation as we know it, and that is time and space. So time and space is, is uh, so Hashem is operating within and he's lending himself into the, into the definitions of time and space. But then there is the transcendental d- divine energy force, which is, and God himself is obviously utterly and totally beyond any system and definition. So he is not defined by time and space and his energy that flows from him, his revelation of his light that emanates from him that has not yet been imbued into the creation but stands above the systems of creation, that energy is beyond time and space and beyond all definitions. Now, these two energies have different names. The energy that systemizes or is included or is invested and somehow defined with certain definitions, as we said before, is associated with the name of Elohim. Generally, it's the power of Malchut, which we spoke about on Monday night. Things are already very fixed and defined and, and limited. But then the transcendental energy of the infinite, um, where the energy is not yet shaped and formed or operating within a certain manner, it's just a, an undefined energy that, that, is, that, that is above all these definitions, is called Yudke Vavkashem's the tetragrammaton indicating its aloofness and its beyondness of time. That's why the word Yudke Vavke contains past, present, and future altogether. Hoya, Hoya means he was, Hove he is, Viyah, and he will be, and as all of that is all unified as one, because there's no past, there's no present, there's no future, it's utterly beyond all that, all that, um, all of that definitions. Now, the question is, to what degree are these are these two separate forces that are completely independent from each other. There is the infinite, and then there is the finite. And obviously, the operation mode as the source of creation is the finite energy, so we say no. One of the, one of the lines we say in this very passage of Nizma Litoda is we say, du'u, you should know, ki Hashem hu elokin, that Havaya, which the Hashem is spelled over there, the tetragrammat in the name of God of Yudke Vavke, and um, Elohim is, again, the, the, the force of nature, the force, the divine force within nature. And what are we saying? That Havaya hu Elohim, that Hashem is Elohim, and Elohim is Havaya. What does that mean? That really the Elohim energy is not anything independent of Havaya. It's just that Havaya himself is projecting to us in a manner of Elohim. In essence, he he's not in any way limited, defined, and confined by any of these systems. Uh, he just exposes mostly a, the way he shows himself, it's, it's a garment, it's basically what it is. It's an external garment through which he's operating in the world, but it's not, and really that external garment is not the power. The power is the undefined, infinite, boundless energy that is just operating and, 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 and interfacing with us through the garment. If the garment would be a power on its own, then the, these forces of nature and the systems that are in place 
would be really true significant powers. What we're trying to indicate over here is that it's really not any power at all. Because just like a garment, when you see a sleeve moving, you know it's not the sleeve moving. You know that the sleeve is moving, but the sleeve is being moved by a power that's inside the sleeve that maybe is being blocked if you're wearing a sleeve that's covering your hands with gloves. So you're seeing, you're seeing a jacket move, a coat move, but it's really a person moving, and that's the, the source of that movement. So we were, every system that is within the world is really being controlled by God himself who infinitely transcends all systems. And therefore, a miracle is absolutely no big deal for him, even though he always interfaces with us through the garments so that we have free choice, so that we don't see him, so that we think things are just natural and the world is just a world, so that it's not so simple, it's not so obvious that God is in our lives, so we can choose to ignore it. If the world would be utterly not run by any systems and everything would be clearly just a divine intervention or a divine, uh, you know, if you, then obviously we would be dependent every second for God's input. We would recognize, we are dependent for his input, but we don't recognize it. But then it would be so obvious and there would be no entertainment from God when we choose to serve him. There would be no satisfaction, Hashem because he would know that, you know, we're serving him because we have zero choice in it. So therefore, God intentionally obscured the infinite and interfaces with us through a through an external outer outer thin little veil of of nature and Elohim. But we need to be wise and know that even though we're not living in a miracle, even though we are experiencing natural courses of things, we know that really the power behind that is not really a power that is defined by any of these systems. It's almost like we say, God is choosing to, to make the day and make the night now from absolute nothing. God is choosing right now to relate to us through in time and in space. It's not that there is really truly a system of time and space. And when the wind is blowing, it's not like there is a system of weather and the wind is blowing. It's God out of his utterly free choose, choice choosing to blow a wind to to, to, to uh, what was I seeing yesterday? I opened up a book randomly over here. I saw one of the sages was very hot and he sat out um, on, he went, he was just such exhausting hot heat. So he sat out on a, on a, on a, um, on a, on a, on a ledge from a mountain where there would be a gust of wind. And he announced, I think he told his daughter or something. He said, I'll give you a bunch of, of I think a certain type of flowers or maybe it was a food item, a bundle. If you stand and you, you know, cool me off a little, take a towel or a, or a fan and fan me a little. And then a wind suddenly came and like, shh, it was a delicious breeze because he was sitting out there with the wind. And he said, well, how many bundles of, of, uh, of these do I have to give to the blower or the wind? So in other words, because he was uh, uh, an elevated human being, he, he didn't just enjoy the wind as a natural gust of wind, but recognized that God at this moment has been kind to him and, 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 and blew a wind to him. So obviously there is a system and a weather system and so on and so forth, but every little part of it is really be controlled by a being that's infinitely beyond it, who's, who's deciding to camouflage himself under the veil of systems, of weather systems and so on and so forth. What we're really saying is that God is intimately involved in every small little thing. In other words, when we eat, 
when we're living because we have eaten, it's not because, and how did we get our food? Because we were able to, you know, we worked for a living and through the, through the systems of economics, we were, were you know, the, 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 there's a system kind of within the world where we're able to earn a living and then take that and turn the money into food. And then we eat food and the food nurtures our body. Food doesn't nurture your body. God nurtures your body. God Almighty himself nurtures your body and my body every second. He's giving life and sustenance to us every second. But he doesn't give us life directly in a way that he hides it and camouflages through the nutrients of the food that he's giving and so on and so forth. So, and, and there's, again, there's multi-layers of layers of layers of systems, but these systems have zero, zero power and significance. It's really only the singular power of God himself who's utterly beyond it all that is driving and hiding through these systems. But what's the beauty of a miracle? The beauty of the miracle is that God parts the veil and he communicates with us not through the ordinary system. So then we suddenly point our finger and we say, here he is. That's it. So the idea of a miracle is godly revelation. When godly revelation means that the higher name of God, the yud Vavke, has been revealed to us. Generally, God is also being revealed to us. He's being revealed to us in the fact that he's taking care of us. He's giving us oxygen every second. That's what we say in the prayer. You know, what does King David sign off the book of the book of Psalms? Which are, which are the last words? On every breath, we have to thank God. Every breath. Thank Hashem for every breath because you're not breathing because you have oxygen. You're breathing right now because God is, is giving you life. He's literally giving you and me and all of us life every second. That's why I'm breathing. He's doing it through oxygen and so on and so forth, which he's continuously creating ex nihilo from, from absolute nothing into something. So it's all really him. It's under an external construct of nature. But as we live in the natural world, we miss the divine. And it takes, it takes thinking and meditation and so on and so forth to recognize it. But... But when a miracle happens, we're like, oh, wow, how did that happen? And then you see that what seems to be a world of systems is not really, there's someone really behind it all that's making all this happen. And that's the miracle. Therefore, a miracle, when a miracle happens, we ought to thank God for being open with us, not being concealed, but being open. Okay. But why? So maybe praise him. Why the acknowledgement? So here's the next point. In the discourse, we learned, actually, this was the first point. I just turned it around. Came, I'm coming with from the back. What's the idea? The idea is that Havaya, the Yudke Vavke, this transcendental divinity is not something that we grasp in our mind. Because on that level, God is utterly unknowable because you're dealing with the infinite. You're dealing with what is not defined. And our minds can't latch itself on something that is not doesn't have any definitions. In order for our minds to grasp and understand something, it has to be definitive. So therefore, when it comes to the, 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 the Elohim element of the divine, the outer crust of the divine, the outer interface with us, since God himself, the divine energy, is systemizing itself into a certain system, on that level of the divine, 
we can know him. We can grasp him. We can understand him with our mind and we can and, and understand it and, 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 and uh, appreciate him. But on the level where God is still above all these systems, we cannot know him in a, we can't really grasp that in our intelligence. In other words, we can sense that there is a power that's beyond it, but we can't grasp it. But just because we can't grasp it intellectually or prove it kind of through, um, or connect to it through any kind of a measurable instrument, device, um, so the mind it doesn't mean that we're cut off from it. We have a unique power in our soul to acknowledge and recognize something even if we're not fully grasping it. And that's the power of Haida. It's a power of submission. It's one of the qualities of the human soul. You know, God could have shut us down from that kind of a thing. He could have made that to us only what we, we understand and appreciate. In other words, whatever phenomenon we're able to um, intellectually grasp, that would be real to us. Anything that our minds cannot behold and our minds can't understand um, would likely be utterly unreal to us to the point that it's for all that we are concerned it doesn't exist because I can't really intellectually process it. But God purposely put a window into our into our psyche in which we can exit ourselves and know like for instance faith. In faith, faith connects to your you're aware and you have a conviction on, on, on in, in, in realities and truths that are beyond your mental grasp, our mental grasp. That's our faith. Our faith kind of can, can allow us to, to recognize and to sense. So this power of submission, of I admit and I surrender, is similar to faith in that sense. Is it, a, it, it it's, it's, it's a sensor that, our ha that we have, or it's a medium that God has implanted in us that we can touch what's bigger than ourselves and bigger than our mind. And by doing that, we can actually connect to God himself because what our minds can filter through is very limited. But God himself, as he is bigger and higher than our minds, we can't understand him and grasp him, but we, but we could acknowledge him and surrender to him. Therefore, when a miracle happens, being that God is treating us to a more personal side of himself, God is allowing us in to experience the, his, his energy, his force that's bigger than, than, than the realm of the, of the natural, the forces, to the, the infinity, the truer power within creation. God is allowing us to experience that transcendental dimension of his being. So God is, so, but if we're going to try to understand what happened in the miracle, I mean, you can understand, you can't understand the miracle, which means you can understand what happened, the sea split, but to understand how a sea splits, 
or how things like that, what is the science behind it and what's the power behind it? Not what baffled by it, but by acknowledging and surrendering and accepting the fact that God did a miracle for me and recognizing there are things that are bigger than in my mind that I humbly surrender to you, we're actually attaching ourselves to that light, to that energy. We're connected to it. And that's the, the, the connection that we learned last week, why, or last time we studied, that why by when a miracle happens, we, the response is not praise. Because praise comes from when you appreciate something and you can kind of, you have more of an understanding and grasp in what happened and, and who you're praising and what you're praising them for. Now that's praise. Praise is more related to a, a, an appreciation that comes from a grasping. Um, um, acknowledgement, gratefulness, thanking, and the word in Hebrew, which means to submit, is when we're dealing with something bigger and higher, and therefore I just I have no idea, but I know God, I know I know God, you're the coolest. I know you are just amazing, and I know you yourself, you know. And, and people, if I'll tell people the miracle that has happened to me that God has done, they might laugh at me and think I'm, 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 I'm childish, I'm, 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 I'm a fool um, because I believe in such things. And scientifically, it can't be. It can't be that this happened. And I say, well, I, the miracle happened to me. I experienced it, and I know, and I know there was no natural phenomenon to it. I know I experienced God firsthand. The people that are so stuck in the world of 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 the predictable and of the sciences and so on and so forth. These are people that don't have room in their soul and their spirit and their being for this, unless they're really, 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 really in trouble, and they're at literally at their wit's end. They're in a foxhole, and suddenly, literally, and and that makes turns them into a believer. It does turn people into a believer when something like that happens, and they. And they can't, and they have to admit that there was a power behind behind them. But people that have no problem, because people that always interface with that transcendental force, experience miracles far far more often. Because uh, you know we're not we're not rigid, we're not stuck. We we've exercised. We open up that window in our soul to to the miracle. Miracle is not such an impossibility. It's almost like. You know, the more you trust in God, the more God becomes a reality in your life, the more he makes himself known in our lives. And the more he operates to us from the level, uh, from beyond the veil. And uh, he knows that we're, we, 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 we're, we're, we're open to it. And he treats us to that. And miracles happen all the time. And others, people look at this person, think they're wacko. But to them, maybe, yeah. But to the person that experiences and has an intimacy with God, God slips in miracles all the times. And amazing things happen. But you have to be a person who's willing to acknowledge. You have to be a person who's willing to transcend that I understand, that I must figure it out. And if my head doesn't behold it, it's not true. As some people live locked in their locked in the in the in the science of life, as opposed in the in the as opposed to in the mystery of life, as opposed to in the 
I was looking for another word. And open to the surprises of living in a world in which you're interacting with God. Okay. Based on all of this, he explains, now we'll understand why when we say Mizmah uh, Letoida, we're holding on, the, on page 144. This is the Mizmah Letoida, that's the reason we said when we say Mizmah Letoida, we, we are referring to a unification between Abba, the Ima, father and mother, the Yitzira. Hold, I just want to make sure to see if in a second here. This is the idea of It's the unification of father and mother of the world of Yitzir. Now we'll understand what's this relationship. Now I'm going to add one more important point so that we can figure out, understand what he's saying over here. The main rigidity and definitions of creation, as we said before, is related to the name of Elohim. And the name of Elohim is primarily the name associated with the attribute of Malchut, because Malchut's kingship is really God is in a very close state of interaction. Hashem lowers himself kind of into the system of creation. He's a king over the world. So he's already adapting to being a creator and creation, and so on and so forth. So therefore, if if you would if we're saying that the divine as well as systemizes himself into certain patterns, it would apply to the attribute of Malchus. The divine energies above Malchus are still free and not systemized. And therefore, when we tap them, miracles happen. Okay. But on a higher level, meaning if we trace the system back, we find that the you know, there's 10 sephiro, 10 attributes, Malchus the lowest, and then the emotional attributes above it, and then there is intellectual attributes. So the, it, the, um, the, there are two primary intellectual attributes. One is called Chachma, wisdom, and the other one is Bina, the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. So it says that Bina is already the source of the name Elohim also is sometimes associated with Bina. Chachma is called Havaya, and Bina is called Elohim. Like when we say Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu. So in the words Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is Chachma, and Elokeinu is Bina. So we're supposed to have in mind this mystical unification between Chachma and Bina that happens when we say Havaya Elokeinu. Because Havaya... Avaya is, um, is, is Chachma and Elohim is Bina. Why? What's the difference between Chachma and Bina in the intellectual range? Bina is already con is systemized. Bina is already definitions. The left side of the brain is very much into formulating, forming, defining definitions. 
the left side of the brain is where grasping takes place, where things are get kind of, you know, they 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 get the mind defines them. It's like it becomes a a a, a definitive set idea. It's called lights in vessels or containers. There are specifics. The right side of the brain is where the creative mind happens. That's where the energy is just simply and raw. And therefore, anything can happen. That's, this, that's the wild part of the, the creative mind on the right side of the mind. And that's the chachma. And that's the, for that reason, bina is called yesh. It's called something. And chachma is called ayin. Chachma is called nothingness. It's into two in the it's 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 expressed in the word chachma koach. It is the power ma of what? That means that in in chachma the energy is still free. It's not defined. It's still what we don't have. And therefore, we wonder about it. It's 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 above us. Bina is already called yesh something definitive. That's why bina is is and malchut are. What, are connected to each other. They're both the feminine element. Bina is mother and Malchus is daughter. And that's already, just like Malchus is creation, Bina is considered the source of creation. And the masculine light is still light emanating from the, the giver, which is God, and therefore it has the divine properties Bina and Malchus have creation properties, which are the creative properties of creation is definitions and specifications. Obviously, Malchus is much more constricted and much more defined than Bina is. Bina is still far more expansive. But yet, Bina is already the source of definitions. It's related to the recipient. That's why it's the female. Female is the recipient. The divine the, the giver, which is the energy as it's coming from the masculine side, where in this sense, the source is the, is the transmitter and therefore it's considered man. That energy on the right side, which is this air ampin corresponding to Malchus, it's the six emotions that are higher than Malchus. And, and relating to Bina, it's the Chachma energy. So both that level of energy is considered Ayin because it has the properties of the source of the Ein Sof, and the properties of the Ain Sof is that it doesn't have any properties and it's free and, and, and so forth. Okay, so that's the setup. Bina is something and Chachma is considered nothing. Now, one point which I didn't repeat today is the perspective from, from the creations the perspective, the way, the perception of reality that is for those who live within that are for all creations and all beings is that the, the, the definitions and the beings and the systems are very, very real. The transcendental power, even if we acknowledge it and we recognize that it exists, it's it's not concrete. What's concrete to us? Concrete is a world. Concrete is if you don't eat, God forbid, you die from starvation. Concrete is, you know, that uh, if you're going to Chicago in the winter, you take a sweater and a coat because 
the system over there is that it's freezing and it's cold. But if you're kind of tapping into what we call the, the nothingness, if you realize that the, the, the real power and the controller of everything is, is God himself, and therefore, so who says it has to be cold in, 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 in Chicago, freezing cold in Chicago and schmoiling hot in uh, down south in uh, somewhere deep in, in Mexico where it's, where it's really, really hot you know, or other tropical places? But it can be freezing. There can be a blizzard over there and it can be scorching hot in the middle of January in Chicago. Now, if we're really, 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 really tapping in, if, if, if to us God is absolutely real, then hypothetically, when you're going to Chicago, you're bringing your bathing suit in the same way like you're bringing your sweater. And I'm not saying anybody should do this. I'm not saying that we should. I'm not recommending this. But I'm saying if someone is living with the reality of the concreteness that God is real and all the systems are, are, are really so superficial to the point that they have no substance at all, so who says, you know, who says it's going to be like the only thing that's guaranteed is God. Anything else, it could be. I don't know. Like people say, oh, the weather says tomorrow is going to be good. Who says? That's <laughs> if God is going to follow the system. Now, usually he does follow the system. So therefore, we can predict. And if you ask me, if you're going to Chicago, if you should take your bathing suit, if you should take your winter coat, I would tell you to take your winter coat. But I know but but even you know even for me or I say me I don't mean me but people like me and so on who teach Hasidus all day long we're still I mean this is my uh, my occupation so we think about these ideas a lot yet nature is still the reality to me it, this is but to a real tzaddik and a very big tzaddik they're living in the state of that's something for nothing. The worlds are not, the systems are no systems. It's just one singular transcendental being that is above it all. And to them, that truth is so real. What I'm saying is you can be a believer, you can be a devout um, 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 Jew and learn Torah, do mitzvot, and be very, very, have a lot of faith in God and believe in God and so on and so But yet, the reality of the world is still, you know, as I mentioned last time, when you hear a prognosis, it scares you. Even though, you know, but you could pray, God could intervene. Yeah, but it's more distant as opposed to doctor. This is not that he's telling you what it is. He's taking the extra. He's looking at what it is. It's because, and, it's, and, 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 and it has to be this way, for those that are living within the construct. When you live within the construct, the system of the construct is what controls things. Even if in the back of your mind, you know there's a superpower that's beyond it and you acknowledge it, but that superpower is called nothingness. And you lift up your eyes to that nothingness and you hope that it will maybe get involved, right? That's perspective from inside. The perspective from outside, God's perspective, total opposite. His infinite, he, he himself is the absolute being. He is real. He is real, real, real. The world's, because he has to be. He's an absolute being. His being is, is the being of beingness. The world's happened to be because 
he's projecting these systems just because he chooses to do so. And at, at, and at any, even while he's projecting it, every second it's dependent on his projection. And number two, the only reason it is that way, not because it is that way in essence, it's because he happens to want it that way. So it's really nothing. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no um, aluminum to it. It's no, it's plastic. It's so, it's so, um, it's so flimsy. It has nothing, nothing at all. So to him, this, when, when we say it's nothing to him, I mean, the world is nothing to him. And the divine energy that's creating and, and systemizing itself is considered a tiny little insignificant ray that he's projecting in that way right now. But what is real substance? His reality. So from his beingness, he is real and the worlds are nothing, literally nothing. From our perspective, we are something. And when him, we don't say he's literally nothing, not, not because he really, even we know that he's the real something. But even though we know it, that's not our reality. Okay? When a miracle happens, or people who merit to see more than one miracle in their life, to the point that they start living with almost like expectations of miracles, because miracles are like a constant. They rely on God so much, and God comes through for them. <laughs> what happens to them is that the, that the other side starts becoming very concrete and very real. And nature starts becoming less definitive and less, less, um, less controlling. They never feel stuck in any situation just because the experts say. Because they're leaning on the being that is really truer to them than what the experts are saying. So he's saying an interesting thing. The system now, Kabbalistically, the systems of creation start with Bina. Bina is like the source, as we said earlier, where, where the, the, the divine is already going into a system. Chachma is still beyond system. But because Chachma is still raw, infinite energy, we refer to Bina as concrete, as something. And we refer to Chachma as what? As Ma, nothingness. Because it's distant. But he says that's from the perspective of Bina. But from the perspective of Chachma, it's the opposite. The infinite energy is the truth. That's true reality. That's real, real existence, real power. The finite system is nothingness. Okay. Now, usually, the manner in which Chachma transit, trans, tr transmits to Bina, the, 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 the infinite power funnels down into Bina, which is the systemized uh, containers, the way Chachma gives to Bina is in a way that Chachma keeps its distance from Bina. It's distance from Bina. Chachma gives to Bina, but in a way of distance. So even though Chachma energizes Bina, it allows Bina to retain her, her view. And what's her view? That the system is very real. The energy that's coming from beyond is more... Uh, I know it's coming from there, but it's... And, and what that does to creation is, is that it, from the Bina, eventually that trickles down 
And time you get down to the physical world and to the world of, you end up with smug and, and um, egotistical scientists who believe that they're the absolute authority over life. What you're seeing now with, with various different things. They decide everything because their understanding is the, is the ultimate. It, 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 that's because the way God creates it is that Chachma allows itself to be not felt in Bina. When a miracle happens, there is a marriage between Chachma and Bina, and Chachma gets very intimate with Bina. When Chachma has intimacy with Bina, Chachma projects its inner light into Bina. And Bina receives the light of Chachma, and Bina is kind of elevated into the truths of Chachma. And when Bina does that, Bina realizes that all her definitions and all her specifications are not the real deal. And that the real power is the power of the Ain Self, which is, which is in Chachma, the Chachma Self. So Bina loses itself into Chachma, and then, then what happens? trickling down, since Bina is the mother of the world, it's the source where creation comes from, creation is treated and privy to a treat. And that is that it gains the perspective of Chachma, that God is real. And then when that happens, what does it do? As we said earlier, it introduces miracles to the world. Because once we're not bowing down to the systems, but we leave the window open and we recognize and every morning we wake up, the weather says like this to me, but it can change any second because it's all dependent on one thing only. It's not what's going on in the Atlantic or in the Pacific or what's moving in, a storm is moving in. It's what God wants at this second. Maybe he's going to let it go this way. Maybe he'll tweak it and change it even though it makes no sense and no meteorologist can tell you why it would happen or maybe this was supposed to be the consequence of this particular state of health in the person but I can say a prayer and reach out to God and he can flip it over in a, in, a, in a split second even though I have absolutely no explanation to it I just read a story the other day and obviously with Sadiqim you know they, they, they they're, they're touching they're because they, to them, God is so real, they access this Hashem himself beyond the system and, and draw it down. I just read the story yesterday that the, um, the Chabad house of, in France, in Nice, I think, in France, had um, advertised one time that a certain doctor would speak at the Chabad house. And he drew, drew a very big crowd because this guy was the most secular um, French doctor, he's a Jewish fellow, but so secular and so assimilated. No one would believe that he would be speaking in a, at, at a religious function, at a Chabad function. So everybody came out of curiosity. What in the world? Is, why is he the featured speaker? What is he going to say? Usually it's inspirational speakers who, in, who inspire faith in God, but what's he going to say? He got up and he told the following story. He had a patient, was under his care for the last for the last couple of months, there was an elderly woman. And she has a can she was a, she had serious cancer, I think it was. And basically just a few weeks ago it was they took a look at x-rays and it was a serious situation where 
He needed to operate emergency within 48 hours. If he told the family, 48 hours, we're going to do an operation. We're going, she's going into surgery. Obviously, it was dangerous and so on and so forth. And the family, of course, would do, do whatever it takes to save grandma's life. So what happened? That one family member, one granddaughter, got involved with Judaism, got close to Chabad. And she started making the ruckus when she heard her grandmother's going into surgery. She says, you don't do a surgery without asking the Rebbe. And therefore, we have to first ask the Rebbe. And if the Rebbe gives his consent for the surgery, we, will, we should go ahead with the surgery. The family didn't want to hear what she said, but she was so insistent. that I forgot her, even gives her name. I forgot her name. She was so insistent, insistent. So they came to the doctor and they said that, the, 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 we, that we were going to check in with you. The guy thought they're crazy. Said, listen here, we have to. We, we can't wait to get an answer. We must go to surgery now. You want to save your grandmother's life back and forth. In the end, um, they were already wheeling the grand. came two days later. They were already wheeling the, the they wheeled her into the operating room when suddenly the door burst open and this young girl herself came rushing in, cried out to me. The doctor's telling the story. And she burst out crying. And she said, doctor, the Rebbe did, said not that she doesn't need the operation, but don't operate. And the doctor, he said, my first notion was, you know, I have a responsibility to my patient and you're, by me listening to you or trying to, this, I'm, you know, this patient is going to die. But somehow she triggered something in his heart. So he ordered that, bef that right before they were ready to operate, they should take her and, and re-examine, do x-rays again. So they put her back in to the examination, took x-rays. Because then the doctor sat and he was baffled and he went crazy. He, him and his, he says, he told us, he said, me and my team were sitting there and looking for about an hour. We looked at these x-rays and these x-rays, these x-rays and these x-rays, and these x-rays and these x-rays. And basically there was nothing there. Over here it was a full-blown cancer and there was nothing there. And the Rebbe said, don't have to operate. So what is it? The Rebbe, Tzadik, is tapping into Avaya. The system, don't, ah, you say, well, how come he doesn't do it all the time? Only he knows why, when, where, where he draws it, and when he can draw it, and so on and so forth. So it's not, nothing is subject to this. But here's what we're learning today. The, 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 uh, Part of the mechanics of this, of, of the, when miracles happen, when the infinite is showing himself, the Havaya element is showing himself in Elohim, is expressed in the concept of the unity between Chachma and Bina. In a manner, not in their regular interaction. Because usually the way Chachma gives life to Bina is that Chachma remains private to itself and it emanates energy to Bina. So Bina then retains her own view and everybody that's feeding off the Bina, which is Bina again is the, is the, is the mother of creation. It's already the mother of the design of creation. 
even though Bina acknowledges that she doesn't have anything without Chachma, she still feels that her reality is a reality. And again, if Bina feels that way, can you imagine how those that are within the construct of Bina further and further and further where creation becomes more and more and more and more fixed and defined and defined and defined and the, and the systems become tighter and tighter and tighter and less, less loose and think till it becomes, you get down to this world where, you know, you bow down to nature. And that's when God created the world, that's how he created it. That it should leave room for that for that kind of a for that consciousness or that state of that state of awareness. But once God engages the Jewish people through Torah and Mitzvot and through His what He what He allows is that we cause a unity between Chach. We bring Him close. We get Him involved. And when Chachm emerges with Bina in a state of intimacy, He allows Himself to completely to, to uh, dominate her. So she becomes dominated by him and she loses herself in him and she suddenly experiences his truth in her space. And then he is no more nothing. He becomes the real something and she lets go of her somethingness and melts into his nothingness, into his somethingness. Even if she doesn't grasp it, but she is imbued with that truth. And then the creations are full of miracles, and then the world is in a state of acknowledgement of God. Now, in our daily prayer, we, we reach that kind of fusion when we say Mizmor Latoda. And that's why the Kabbalists say that Mizmor Latoda which again, the word toda means acknowledgement. But as we said earlier, this truth, this um, this level can't be grasped because our minds are finite and we're dealing with an infinite, we're dealing with an infinite revelation of God. So we can't grasp it, but we can surrender to it. And that's the idea of toda, toda, thank you. And what do we say when we say this moment toda? The no, ki Hashem elokim. Elokim is bina, is the system. Know that the system is really nothing. It's the flimsy external outside seem out very, very, very external outer shell or outer little uh, film of the real power that's that's that is that is that is the real substance of reality, which is Havaya. Havaya is Elokim. It's not two separate things. And that's why they are the mystics tell us. That what's the what's the, what's the science behind it? <laughs> what's the science of this beyond science? Is the unification of of father and mother of Bina primarily is that father is dominating, dad is dominating mom in this case, which means the 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 the, the undefined, limitless energy of God is 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 revealing himself in all of his power. And in that sense, the worlds are then in a state of, of joy. This is the awesome joy, incredible revelation, incredible intimacy with God, as we'll soon see. And this is the idea of this is the Yichud of Ava. Ava means of the world of formation. Because father and mother, you do it is known. That they are Chachma and Bina. 
they're called two friends, the loimus parsh. Now, Chachma and Bina, Chachma is always feeding Bina. But he's explaining that there's two ways of how Chachma feeds Bina. One way where Chachma feeds Bina is like a husband and a wife when they're not being intimate. He's just supporting her. So there is a, there is a channel. He's channeling her. But then she retains her 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 uh, her her uh, her truth. And he's a more distant supporter. But then there is the intimacy of them. And he says, usually under the regular circumstances, Chachma is called because it's not so it's called nothingness because it's there's no definitions. There's nothing to latch our minds. Our minds can't define it. Our scientific brains can't can't systemize it. Can't uh, can't vabina and bina where godliness is already making itself known into a certain pattern. So bina is called yesh is something. That's like the perspective from below. Our perspective is that we are and he is. Uh, Reality are the systems. But this is only This is only when Chachma receives the influence from Bina. But looking at it from up down, the when the lights of Abba, which is the light of Chachma, perceives itself, where Chachma is, hasn't yet in shown its light into Bina, at this point, what it's giving, whatever it's giving to Bina is considered nothing. It, it's unrestrained, un, undefinitive light, which is just a reflection of the orange of Ein Sof himself. That's real reality. This that Chachma is called the power of what? To who is it what? To us that are that don't know it, it's called what? To the mind, the menasag, it's considered higher than grasping. When its light is coming into bina, then when we sense this higher light, we say, "Wait, this is so deep; it's above my head." The, the, what we understand is called something. It's solidified. What is still above us? Compared to what we understand, it's called nothingness. It is concealed. But the Chachma itself, he's the real substance. By a way of example, like in a person, give an example. There is our mind, our understanding, but then there is the power that produces all intelligence. So to our conscious mind, the power from where all intelligence comes from is, we know it exists because we know intelligence comes from it, but, but to us it's like, it's the, it's the mind and the intelligence that's substance. Higher than that is like, the power of what? It's some kind of an unknown power to us. But to the power that's creating all intelligence, the, 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 the conscious mind and, the, and the, the limitations of the limited ideas that, are, that make up the person's intellectual um, truth, intellectual, is nothing compared to the, to the capacity of the, the potential creativity that the pre-mind has. So if we were to be able to look for, rise up and look from that place, we would look at the conscious 
uh, mind and its and its limited um, 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 world of ideas as something so nothing. And more than that, we were realized that the fact that we understand it this way could be tweaked and things could be understood very differently if it happens to be that the way we're pumping things out of our mind is in a certain direction. So, but to that power that is really undefined and unlimited, whatever is, is considered nothing. And it is the real power of, right? The power of the, of the mind that creates all ideas. That's the essence of the power of one's intelligence. So to the Chachma itself, the way, the way this power, this essential power views itself, Chachma is called Yesh, and Bina is called nothing. The Omnam, however, however, but when Chachma does reveal itself and its light and its power into Bina, not from a distance, allowing Bina to turn the tables around and claim her beingness. But Chachma stuns Bina with its powerful light and, and, and melting the Bina into its truth. The, the Bina, and in our case, all the, all the grandchildren of Bina, which means all the constituents of Bina, which is the creation, um, the way it cannot grasp it, because it's above its mind, this is infinity, the way it accepts it is by humbly surrendering. In the creations, this can't be grasped. Only the, only the understandings of Bina that are already fixed and defined ideas. Because once it's coming and filtered through Bina, it's already, the light is already in a state of somethingness. And Chachma is called nothing. Just because it's called nothing doesn't mean I can't connect to it and can't accept that as the ultimate truth. I can transcend my, my limitations and accept and, and, and experience the reality of what's, what's beyond my mind and submit that it is true and it becomes the most dominating factor in my life. How delicious and how wondrous is it to be a human being, you're so free. Nothing subjects you. Nothing scares you. Nothing intimidates you. Simple words. This is a person who literally lives on God's lap every second. So what's going to scare me? What's going to intimidate me? If the master and the controller of everything is a local call, not even long distance, and always picks up the phone, and loves me infinitely. So anything that scares me. And that's the idea of the taking, even if I don't understand it. In a manner of surrender, you can reach this level. That's the point. You can reach and accept and therefore Experience this level. In other words, when you're in any situation, 
prayer is so much more valuable to you than going to the doctor. Prayer is so much more comforting to you than going to the lawyer. Prayer is so much more um, 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 truer and, and your natural go-to more than any other something that you can reach for help. It's like, the, what's our first reaction when we find ourselves in trouble? What's our first reaction? Is our first reaction to say a psalm and to reach for God? Or is our first reaction to see what can I do naturally to help myself in this situation? By a Jew, and if we are spiritually healthy, then our first reaction is prayer. And when we did that, we know that we're already 100% helped. And then we know that God also wants us to do something naturally. So we will happen to be also pick up the phone and call someone but not because you believe in the someone or in the something, because God is on your side already. It's just that, you know, Hashem wants to work through something. So, but if that won't work, then it doesn't in any way phase you because you know He's still going to help you either way. If you live with that, the miracles happen nonstop and you'll live in miracles. And that, that's the barometer. What's your first instinct when you're in trouble? Turning to God or turning to the, the, the scientist, the expert. So if we, if we, if we exercise Mizma Latoda and we, 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 we develop this, 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 this meditation in our being, then even if we can't explain it, and even as we said earlier, your, your sophisticated cousin or neighbor or uh, acquaintance or whatever it is is going to laugh at you and think you're just a uh, uh, <laughs> uh, what is it a non-grounded uh, human being. You're very grounded. You're grounded in real substance. And doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to do natural take natural steps. God commanded us, but we don't we don't put our weight into that. We do it because we're commanded to, not because we have any belief in it. And therefore, he's saying, but in, in, in terms of acknowledgement and surrender, you can reach this, this, this understanding. Which means Hashem, that's beyond the system, is the real substance. You can't have an understanding over here. If you need to understand, you might as well check out right now. With submission. Right? I submit to you. I bow down to you. This is the root of this idea of because thank you. This is the concept of Yichod. Yichod means more than just Chachma influencing Bina. Chachmas being intimate, they become one flesh, like an intimacy. So they become one, which means Bina then becomes elevated into Chachma. And Chachma is then, she has Das. Intimacy is Das. She has a complete connectivity into Chachma. And Chachma is then completely revealed in her, in her consciousness. We're talking about in the divine source of all the systems. But then in some small way, it trickles down when we activate this in our own. We're actually connecting to that to that unity, and we gain the perspective 
And that truth is now shining in our soul. And obviously, when, when we, we experience this, our faith, our power, our energy, our calmness, everything is replenished. And what does a yichud mean? The yichud means that that chachma dominates bina to the point that bina becomes absorbed in chachma. And when bina becomes she, she lets go of her. She doesn't take herself so seriously. She lets go of herself, and she melts into His truth. In, the, in this case, into God's infinite truth that's beyond the whole system. And he and he's shining in her again. She doesn't grasp him, even though her nature is to grasp. She can't grasp this, but for now she's suspended in his truth. As he says again, and this cannot such a revelation cannot come into the creations if we are if we're insistent on needing to understand and grasp. We don't allow our minds to relax and to open up to the impossible. This can only arrive to us in a, in a manner of surrender. That we should submit through thank, through acknowledgement. That he is more, he is the real being and down here is nothing. And therefore, it's always up to God. That's all. <laughs> you know, it's not the last resort. God is the first resort in every situation. And therefore, every time we use this, when are we when are we called to do a hayda to activate this this power in our soul to accept beyond our understanding? When we're tapping, when there is when God is communicating to us through chachma, when He's treating us to His higher light, and that's in a miracle. And, and that's why in Bina, you don't need Haida. In Bina means when God is shining to you in a way through the systems, then you can understand that you don't have to surrender. Like will be explained later. So on, on the day of Shabbos, we know that what's the energy of Shabbos. Shabbos is called Shabbos Kodesh. And the Zohar says, Kodesh is Chachma. Shabbos is a day of Chachma. That's why Shabbos is a day of submission. Shabbos is a day when we melt into God's truth. That's why we're now out of work, because we don't feel ourselves on Shabbos. We're so lost in God's truth. We're not allowed to even show any bit of self to say that I'm doing my business, because there, there is no my. Shabbos, God dominates the world, and he allows us to enter into his truth. But on Shabbos, Shabbos is the same idea like a miracle. It's the energy of Chach. And that's why on Shabbos, when we say Mizmo Shili Yoma Shabbos, which again this intimacy of Chachma Bino, but as I said in the earlier, in the earlier part of the class, then in Shabbos it's 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 taking place on a much loftier state of existence. It's in the Chachma and Bina of the primary world of Atzilus. In the weekdays, it's on a on the this this energy that we're tapping of Chachma influencing Bina is in a realm much closer to our physical realm. And obviously, then the, the chachma and the bina are much of much lesser force uh, because the weekdays we can act, we're not accessing higher. The six days of the week, this unification is taking place of chachma bina of yitzira bavad. 
Because on in the weekday, the name of the tetragrammaton of Havaya, which is, as we said before, is the power of Chachma. But in this case, in the world of Yetzira, because in each world, the ten attributes of God manifest. So in the world above our world, which is the world of Yetzira, formation, the angelic realm, which obviously is very much controlling what takes place in our world, right? Down here, on that level, the, the, the Havaya state, which is still considered, as we said before, transcendental infinite energy, is mislabish, is enclosed, B'Shem Elohim Debina. It's enclosed in the name of Elohim Debina in a manner where it's not getting lost. It's not like Bina swallowing the Chachma. It's the opposite. It's enclosing in a manner, but that the Chachma dominates the Bina and it melts Bina into itself. It is enough to those who understand. Wow. Deep stuff. Now, why are we learning this this week? So I told you I'm learning it this week. I decided to teach this class a few weeks ago because of my birthday. I also have something to thank God for, for a miracle that he's done for us, that my, thank God my grandson is all good and everything is great. And it doesn't make a difference to me how how likely it was based on nature, because that's utterly irrelevant. I know that on Sunday I prayed and my family prayed and God answered. And yeah, and so the messengers were the doctors and so on and so forth. Fine, but could have, God forbid, just gone the other way and with all the doctors and, and it went this way because God sent a miracle. So that's why Ms. Molotoda, that's what we have to think. But now it's related also to Parshas Mishpatim to this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is where we start reading the laws of the Torah. Now, the laws of the Torah are called halacha. Halacha, it means the, these are the laws of the Torah. Is the Halacha means the, the, um, yeah, the law of when, when you come to a rabbi and you want to know how to behave in a certain situation, you ask, what's the halacha? which means what's the Torah requirement of my behavior. So these are the laws. Parshas Mishpatim deal with laws pertaining to so many areas of our life, particularly regarding financial obligations and how to deal with finances and so on and so forth. And many other laws pertaining to all this week's Parsha. This is the first encounter in Torah when we really get into the halachic range. I was intent. I was not intending to learn this today, intentionally because of this connection. But to me, the connection is. Now, how, why am I talking about halacha now? Because the next words after mizmul asayda, after the words mizmul atoda, which we said is what is this union of father and mother of yitzira, which is this intimacy, allowing the divine to become very real to us, and therefore nurturing our faith and our ability to not get phased by anything that hits us in our life, to always know that God is utterly the only reality and he can, you know, overpower, not overpower, he is the power. And therefore, the miracle is not even a big deal. It's just, it's so there because, you, know, you know, let's put it this way. This is an important idea. The more we are convinced in nature's powers and that the world is really governed by nature, 
the less likely a miracle is to happen because then you need the superpower to change everything. Things are the way they are because they are, and then who knows what you need. But when a person elevates their consciousness to a level that God is so real to them, that the fact that the sun is coming up on the east side is a miracle to them. You're looking up and saying, wow, God, you're so spectacular. It's not even a sun. You're shining to me. It happens to be through the sun, but you are shining to me. And anything you see and anything you experience, it's, 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 it's just God. And as you pass all these veils and, 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 and curtains and you see Hashem himself, who is the real power in all of this, then the miracle is really not a big deal because nature and the miracle is literally the same thing. Because nature, is, it's not like this, the system has zero value. So then since the miracle is not a big deal, why shouldn't that happen? It, 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 you're not, <laughs> it doesn't even cost you a lot of credits. If, if the miracle is a big deal, then it actually costs a lot. It's another thing about why, you know, sometimes you say it's not such a good thing to have a miracle happen to you because a miracle happens to you. God treated you something special. He deducted, like, you know, and, you know, you have, you have, it's like, it's like you want to pay for airline for points. Oh, so this is, you know, if you want to take you, you want to fly over there, it's 50,000 points. And you have to, do you want to use 50,000 points of your credits? So hopefully we have some, we scored up some points with God for the, some good deeds that we do. And we say, oh, the miracle is going to cost us so much. But that's only if the miracle is a big deal. If the miracle is not a big deal because you're living, your reality is that reality. So then, you, then, then miracles don't, God doesn't charge a lot for a miracle because it's not a big deal. That's, that, that's the chiddush over here. So the next words after Mizmah is a real Hashem Kalar. Shout out to God, the whole world. Understand, this is exciting. Shout out to God, the whole land. But in the going back to the Siddur of Reb Shapsi, it's not this, it's the Siddur of the Ari, on the words, shout out to God, he says, Halacha. It's the spells the word Halacha, which means that that's where God is present. What does it have to do? What does Halacha have to do with Hariyu is a hey, Lashem is a lamid, Kol is a chav, and Ha'aretz is a hey. So it spells halach. So what does law have to do with shout out to God, the whole, the whole land? So he, in, in the Siddur over here it says, because where does God dwell where there is halach? When we keep halach, which means we take God seriously, we allow then God to be there. So God enters where we are respectful of him. And when he's, and he wants something, when God wants something, um, we pay heed and we attention and, and we so into it to the very detail. That's part of, when does someone keep Allah? Because God is very real to him. So then God is present over there. That's, that, that's the simple meaning of why and that's the meaning of Ariul Hashem Kalaris. Shout out to God all over the land. Meaning wherever you keep halacha, you can shout out to God because God will be proud. What are you shouting? You're shouting because you're excited because God is there. But where can you be excited that God is present through halacha? And that's the meaning of Ariul Hashem Kalaris. But he's going to explain it much stronger over here. What is the next word? And what does it have to do with Toda, the idea of halacha? Ariul Hashem Kalaaretz Rashatein Salacha is the is the acronym of the word Allah Kido as it is known. The Ine Yidu as it is known. The Shay the Shatayin Allah Havdul Minatam Alatar. The root of the Torah is to separate between what is impure and pure. 
One of the things, one of the primary occupation of Torah is Torah's mitzvahs. And the Torah defines to us and specifies to us what's, what's pure, what's impure, what's kosher, what's not kosher, what's permitted, what is forbidden, what is guilty, and what is innocent. So that's that's all the mitzvahs. It's this, yeah, this, no. This you can eat, this you can't eat. This you can wear, this you can't wear. If you're in this situation, you're impure. If you're in this situation, then you're pure. The, the, the blemish comes on your body over here, impure. If it, if it shrinks, pure. Black, white hair in it, impure. Right? Or it spreads across your whole body, pure. <laughs> like sometimes it, it makes logical sense, sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but yet this is God's will. So the Torah is some kind of a sorting out the, the, the aspects of this world. Now, obviously, when you say something is pure meaning and something is kosher, means that it is fitting for God to be there. It's fitting for holiness. Something is not kosher or not pure belongs to the dark side. It means it's a godless state. Or during that time, there's a certain blockage of godliness. But what is the, what, who is the decider of all of this? Obviously, it's God's will, but where is it revealed? It's revealed in the Torah. Why the Torah? Because Torah comes from Chach. Torah stems, Chach is the divine wisdom. In, 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 it's, the, it's Hashem's mind. But remember, but, but as we spoke earlier, in Hashem's mind, there's two levels as well. There is the fixed level, and then there is the more creative state of the mind where things are not yet fixed and defined. It's the, it's the, it's the Chachma, it's still the, this Chachma Amina. Torah is rooted in Chachma. And Torah descends into Bina. There is the Bina of Torah. But the real essence of Torah is the Chachma light. And because Chachma comes from there, that's why Chachma decides kosher, not kosher. What's the relationship? So there's a concept stated in Zohar that Chachma does bitter, separates good from bad. So we'll understand the depth of that. Why do you need Chachma only? Why can't Bina be? Through divine understanding, you can understand what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's spiritually good, what's dangerous. Okay, Our mind, let's say down here, we can't see because we're physical. We can only determine health and, and non-healthy in the physical realm. What's, what's good, what's not, what's bad in the physical realm. You need to have a higher transmission to tell us that. Yeah, but the Bina, the divine understanding, it can tell us. So we'll soon see the depth of the concept of only Chachma does this separation. But what, what's the connection over here? Because the whole idea of Mizmolatoda, which is where miracles are coming from, is from what, as we were saying earlier, is from an infusion of Chachma into Bina. That Chachma dominates. So we're going to see that Halacha is also related to that, to the to the to the infusion of chachma. 
And that's why in the Mizmah we mention Halach. Okay. We're going to get to that. We're going to bring it together later. But let's first see what he says regarding now, he says, when you're talking about bitter, bitter means refinement, which refinement has to do with a mixture. He says, when there's no mixture, there's no refinement. A refinery takes something that is mixed and separates the good from the bad. And primarily, when do you really need a powerful power to refine and to separate? Is when things are not so differentiable. Okay. If you have a, uh, I don't know, let's think a bowl of of a salad or a bowl of strawberries in it. And in the middle of the bowl, of the strawberries, you have a few, uh, I don't know what, the big pieces of earth that fell in mud. So to separate that, no big deal. Because it's so clear that this doesn't belong in it. You don't need, you don't need no specific eye. You, but then there are people who have a unique eye and they're able to, I'll give an example. To me, if you'd give me a bunch of diamonds. I don't have the eye. I can look at diamonds and I wouldn't know. What's a clean stone? What's not a clean stone? And even if you'd give me, you know, I probably wouldn't even know how to look in that magnifying, whatever it is. The special, I forgot what it's called. That was once, I once worked a long time ago for my uncle, who's, maybe that's why he's throwing this thought to me because his presence is here. See, I, it's, a, it's funny because I, I dedicated, because he was a diamond dealer. I actually tried once he took me into his office to work for him. And he said he was going to train me how to, how, to, how to look at diamonds and cut diamonds. In the end, whatever, it didn't work out. So if I look at diamonds, I wouldn't even be able to tell, like, but to see an imperfection. And you have to train your eye. And then you can, so you can give him a whole, you know, a thing of diamonds. You can pick out the ones that he sees are like potential. He'll take, I want this one, I want this one, this one. To me, it wouldn't make a difference. I don't have the discerning eye, but, but, that's because it's hard to tell. We're dealing with the, the tiniest, tiniest infractions that can literally, to the eye that can tell, can be a difference of, you know, $10,000 when you're dealing with really precious, really high-quality stones, the tiniest thing. For that, you need an expert. You need a chachma mind that's able to look and separate. So he says like this, there are certain elements in this world that are really dark. For those things, you don't the general ideas of Torah, where Torah tells us, not kosher, kosher, right, wrong, that's not the main, obviously we human beings wouldn't know anything. What does God like? What does God not like? What's pure? What's not? You know, why, uh, why a sheep and not a rabbit? You know, a rabbit is not kosher. I mean, we wouldn't know because we're not. But the truth is, if we would have a little bit more, if we would have a little bit more, a little higher type of vision and we were able to look into the etymology and the, the real chemistry of the rabbit and spiritual chemistry of it, we would understand that this is a dark energy that's not meant to be associated with holiness. This is a, you know, it's a cute animal. And this is a, uh, you know, this is uh, a, uh, this is, is able to be brought into the experience of holiness and godliness. This type, of, this type of creature. So we, would, we wouldn't need the finest, that's what we're saying. 
But then when you start getting in, that's the laws of Torah, of the written Torah. When you start getting into the oral law, which as we discussed this week, the Talmudic study, it starts getting very, very intricate and very, very fine, fine question. In other words, there's a real question. This kosher, not kosher, yeah or no. There's so many reasons to say like this and so many reasons to say like that. And you have to find, find, find and really be able to look at it and get the real, you know, fine lines of right and wrong, of good and bad, of holy and unholy, which takes, obviously you're using halachic principles to decide that. And you had brilliant minds, something to arguing and going over back and forth, kosher, non-kosher, right? Until they would come to, uh, so that ability to do that, that's the real power of Torah, is, is the mirror to be able to discern when two things look, look alike. Something that you can see immediately that's not your. For example, you know, there are certain questions that you can go to any rabbi. You present him, and he can immediately tell you, you're allowed to do that on Shabbos, you're not allowed to do that. You're allowed to eat that, you're not allowed to eat that. And you can go to even a very mini rabbi, someone who got smicha and he knows a little bit, whatever. The really tough questions when they're very, very subtle, those are the ones that you have to bring to the big. They're the biggest scholars because they have that. They're the experts to be able to discern on the finer notes. When things get mixed in and you, the eye can immediately discern. If you take out these big pieces of mud from the strawberries, it's not considered a major refinement. When we're dealing with a very, very, very fine little um, so this, a fine, tiny little impurity, and it's mixed in it's not seen at all. But then you use a special kind, like for example, you're, you're dealing with flour, and in the flour, you know, you're looking at the flour, you don't see any pieces that are not good. It's all mixed into the flour, and then you put it through a special sifter, and you sift and sift, and suddenly there's little pieces that end up staying in the in the sifter on the top. These are the impurities. The flour, that's why it didn't crush. It's little things, they stay on the top. That You need a special vessel for it. You can separate it. That's called the real beer. The same as with the, with the laws of when you're dealing with it, uh, ritually impure and ritually pure, or Prohibited substances and permissible processes. The, the, the chacham is not needed to separate between what is utterly abominable to what is totally pure. Okay, in this case, it's not abominable, but it's but what is considered pure in holiness or not. Like when the woman is during her time of menstruation and she's not, not in a state of union with her husband. Uh, and that's spiritually because there's a spiritual impurity. That has to do with the woman's unique state, spiritual power that she's, I'm going to see later, she's from Malchut. And from Malchut, the chitzonim, the external forces of unholiness can latch itself on. And during the menstruation, that's the point. So that state 
that she's then forbidden is very clear. So when you're looking, you know, this the, a woman is the smack in the middle of a, literally in the middle of a period, and then you have or this woman who's you know clean. So it's clean in the sense that there's she's not in the middle of. So co- this is kosher. This is not kosher for the time being. It's very clear. You don't need to ask. Or whether when it comes to food, this is talking about relationships. When it talks about food, when things that are utterly forbidden, like pork, or any non-kosher animal, or something that's utterly kosher. You don't need to be a big rabbi to say that this is pork and it's not kosher and this is uh, this is uh, beef from a cow that was kosher, you know, that, that is, it is kosher. It's only when it comes to the little fine, fine elements of impure and pure. Something that you're trying to find that you can say it's pure, even though it is, it looks defiled. This needs a lot of examination. Sometimes a rabbi will think about a certain thing for days on end, back and forth and back and forth. Can we? Permit it? Can we not permit it? To know really well and to define elements. Not to purify something that is really Tame. Now, because uh, you don't want to make that mistake. But if it's really not Tame, it would be doing it a very big disservice for saying that it's impure. And you say, who cares? Leave it alone. No, because anything that sh- that is not impure, it could be elevated, it could be brought into the experience. We're obligated to get to 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 to, to allow it in. It is no, it's no big um, accomplishment to reject everything. And only people that have very little, that are very small scholars, they they will they will say everything is not you know, it's not kosher, it's not good. Those that have a much broader understanding will be usually far more permissible in the sense that they will be able to extend the law and find the permissibility in things. That's why we always know that it's easy to be a very stringent rabbi, but it's far more valuable if you can be a far more lenient. I'm not talking about leniencies that you make up in your own stomach. I'm talking about leniencies built on real halacha, based on halachic determination of being able to find, to find the, to, to fine tune the question and look at the fine lines and then see how what looked to be not good, but really because of this aspect, it changes the whole thing. Right? But that already takes much more. And this chachma this is in the oral talk. And it means to really, really understand the halacha, understand the rules fundamentally. Understand it in a very deep way. Acha Yav until he understands Vyavara Koldovidar and clarifies everything. Via bitter nochin and it will be so 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 clear. Until you get into all details of details and understand things at a very, very fine abstract state. And from there you can maneuver yourself so much more freely to Allow for certain things that you would that maybe on the first loop you would say it's not it's not permitted. That what is tahar and what could be accepted, which means it could be purified or considered pure, it's tar and not and not tameh. This is what the verse says to separate between 
what is tame, what is ritually impure to what is pure. This separation is not Chachma is the one that does it. Now, what he's saying is, again, we're going to go back. He's emphasizing that it's Chachma. It's not, and to the exclusion of Bina. So what is that? What's the difference between the small scholar and the, and the deeper scholar? You see, when someone is a limited scholar, when someone doesn't have a very, very, very deep understanding, but has more of an external understanding, then every single thing you understand, you understand every 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 concept you you process, you process it in a very definitive form. It goes into your mind in a certain way, and it's locked in that in that state, and you can't. And that's because your understanding, not its essence, you're understanding it externally, and the external definitions which are really external, is what's blocking you from seeing the essence. If you can pass and undress the idea from its external garments and reach the quintessence of the, of, of, of the idea, which really is, means stepping out of the bino, which is the external exploration of things, and touching the idea in its, in its most abstract beginning of beginning original form, then you're far, far more, you have far more liberty, you have far more space to, to, to extract things from being locked like this or like, like that. Probably so many examples that we can give of this. The people that, that can appreciate um, and, and can look at things not in, in, in a dense way, but see the fine, the fine, Elements they can differentiate and they can separate. So it might be like others. This is the way it is. Uh, it's 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 if, if you're listening carefully and looking deeply, see this is a different kind of a case. But that's only if you can get out of the bina and get into the chacham. So therefore, the real power of Torah is the power of Torah of of chacham, not bina. It's when the scholar can can appreciate the essence, not the definitions. Because the definitions already define and 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 create more of a a a, a boundary, and, and those boundaries are sometimes constricting, right, and 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 limiting things, as opposed. So it doesn't mean you're not God forbid you're going away from the truth. As you get closer to the essence, the more the more. Um, the more you can limit the concept to only a, a very, very narrow state, in other words, precisely because of you're undressing it, that's why you're able to zoom in to the fine, the fine points, and then you see that this case doesn't match exactly this prohibition, and then it's okay. So you can free it because you're able to define it so cautious, so specifically, but that's because you're understanding it on a very, very fundamental way. You, you're, you're painting with a very fine brush and not with a broad brush. The broad brush, this is, uh, this is mukta, uh, for sure it's mukta, for sure it's not good. That, that, and the bina does that more. The chachma allows you into the essence. And that's the idea of chachma. chachma does that. So scholars who get deep they're touching, they're innovative, they get deep into the creative element of the mind. 
No, but now he's going to take it even a step further. And this is really, really cool. So, so far we explained why to really define halacha, to really differentiate, define things. Chachma, that stems from Chachma, not from Bina. But now we're going to see the real impact of Chachma is even stronger. When you really, in Chachma itself, you're getting into the very, very, very essence of the abstraction of the idea. Then you, then you have also the ability to, to, to do something You're able to go even deeper in the sense that you can even completely turn things over. What does that mean? You're able to find reason and uh, and convictions, not convictions, or 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 uh, tam means a reason, and seichol means a an idea. Also to purify that which is fitting to be impure. In other words, you have something that should be completely impure. But because you understand things on such a fundamental level, you can even look at something that's totally impure and do a surgical a surgery over there and extract it from that reasoning of being pure. Like the sages say, that there was the student, he was such a brilliant student, that, are, that even, there was a student, now, we know one of the things that are utterly impure, the Torah says it's impure, is a certain types of of, um, of creepy crawly stuff. There are eight types of creepy crawly, mostly different types of lizards, but a rat is part of it, I think, and a, and a uh, weasel maybe. There are certain types of animals that are called the eight types of creepy stuff that if they die, they, they, they impart a strong impurity. A snake dies, it's not. The corpse of it doesn't impart impurity. A frog, also not. It's right, they are not. But these various type of frogs, they do. Okay. Now, it's specifically, the Torah tells you specifically which ones are the ones that are forbidden. Yet this student, because of his incredible brilliance, the Talmud says he was able to give 150 reasons to purify the sherets. That even the sherets, which is explicitly stated in the Torah, shouldn't be impure. Now, obviously, <laughs> they they uh, they uh, said, uh, "Yeah, you're brilliant," but the Torah says it's not like you, you know. So he had no, he was able. He, he used valid arguments of Torah because he was so deep that he was able to retire the shaft. The kufnon time in 150 reasons. The din was against the din. It was against the law. Now. So, even though his was an extreme case, because you can't make the sherets, this dead uh, animal, you can't make it pure, even with your most brilliant understanding. But the alternative is saying where that is possible, where things are so likely to be not, not good or not kosher or whatever, and yet the power of Chachma is to have to ability to move to move something over from the forbidden to the permissible. And there are, there are times 
and there are situations when rabbis did that and they did it and it was correctly done. That's the point. Why? Because it goes back to what we're saying. If you can get to a concept in its quintessential idea, then you undress it from all the things that lock it. And at this point, you can even, you're very free to move things around. That's the idea. With the power of to purify, and to permit, or to find innocence. That, that, in other words, you're showing that according to halacha it is. In other words, you're not, this student was like used Torah mythology, but in the end, Torah methods, it was not according to halacha. But in this case, uh, you could do it. And show that according to Din and Allah, it is also good. Can you do as it is not? You find it in the Talmud so many times where initially it was so sure that something is some a, cer- a certain situation is the guy's guilty for a crime that he did. And he should be punishable by death or by lashes or whatever the punishment is, or a fine. And yet the Talmud kind of backs and backs and back and forth and back and forth and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper until they exonerate him. And according to Allah, he's exonerated. Or they go back and forth about something that should, when you're looking in the Chumash, it seems for sure that it's forbidden and the Talmud kind of proves that it is permitted. In which the Halacha permits something. And to purify based on various different reasons, even though what seems to be so absolutely ritually impure or forbidden, if you're only working with the verses of the Torah, to do something like this, Bina has no ability to do that. Bina, as we said before, is already where things are defined. You have to really, really be able to reach Chachma, which is still a simple energy. It's not tainted yet. It's not colored yet. In any, Obviously, someone who has to be able to reach the divine of that level. God's mind on that. Just like it is with rabbis down here below, it's studying Torah. The same is also true when we're looking at the divine attribute of Bina versus the divine attribute of Chach, that from the Bina element, from where creation is already, from the from the structure, from the starting of the structure and the, defi- the divine intelligence of creation where things are already mapped out already and defined. From that level, the world is divided into the kosher, the non-kosher, and we, and we have very little ability to move things around. But when we engage a higher level of the divine, we engage the Chachma, and we draw down that energy, which rabbis do when they're studying Torah with a state of absolute nullification to God, in a state of bittel, when they, are, when they recognize that God's Torah is bigger than their minds, and therefore they, they free themselves from their preconceived notions and allow themselves to sense the divine, the divinity in the Torah. And that's when they're activating these very, very high sublime levels of Chachma. 
then we increase tremendously the borders of holiness and we can we can invite into the experience of holiness even that which would have naturally brought to the to the tribunal they would immediately say reject this is too ugly this is too dark this is not acceptable you can't utilize this because we know there's sparks of holiness at least once now everything is elevated already but really the sparks that are elevatable then there are certain things that god says these are things that i that are not according to my taste but again that needs to be we have to really tinker with it and when we apply the chachm element we can allow much more to come in that which was not allowed through the bina let me give you a simple example perfect example so jews are are following torah jews are following torah and mitzvot And, and we have certain standards of Torah and Mitzvot. And in our communities, we, we want to keep up these standards of Torah and Mitzvot. So if someone wants to jo join the community, you know, we can be nice a little while to this and that, but ultimately if the person is not, you know, is, is not, not keeping this or keeping that, then sometimes the or at least it was, now things are changing. It was the custom that, you know, you're an outsider, you don't belong here, you know. The Rebbe and Hasidus Chabad opened up the doors to everybody and was far more drawing in and accommodating and bringing in. People who look at it superficially think, oh, Chabad is lax. Chabad is like, oh, they're not so, they're, you know, they're not so rigid about Torah. It means they don't care so much opposite when you know Torah in its inside not just its external elements when you appreciate a Jew for instance and you don't see the Jew as externally you see, you're able to look and look and look deeper and deeper and deeper and see things in its origin origin and origins that creates a far more you're just as it, as it adherence to Torah and mitzvahs in a very, 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 in an absolute, unshakable, un, un, but yet, you have the ability to allow so much more in to join, and eventually they too will become involved, and you're not threatened by it. You're able to go there, you're able to invite it in, because Chachma is far more expansive. That's just an example of where it trickles down into, into personal, into, into actual, actual behavior, as you see. And in this sense, Chabad taught the entire world. But the reason Chabad has it is Chabad has this deep, this deep understanding, this very abstract understanding of Judaism. So then we're able to, you know, the 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 notion that the Jew and Torah and mitzvahs that the Jew is a Jew because he learns Torah and does mitzvot. So if you're not learning Torah and doing mitzvot, you're not really much of a Jew. That's because you don't have a deep understanding of what a soul is. Stand a deep understanding that the soul is a piece of God, then the Jewishness is not dependent on the Torah and mitzvot. Then you can realize and, and separate this the Jew when there's this behavior. The behavior is not good yet, but, but the person himself is a holy Jew. 
So you're not limiting the holiness only to the observance. You're recognizing that this holiness much deeper than the observance. There's essential holiness. And therefore you can bring it in. And that's the idea. The deeper you go, the more broad you can be. So we'll understand that. Chachma does avatzilus bring allows everything to become purified. Chachma does birur. Hadim is not not allows everything. All birur and all rectification, all purification happens from chachma. Hadim is barer why? Even things that. The first glance, they seem to be from the bad. The whole reason we have to sort things out is because it's a mixture of good and bad. So when you encounter things that look bad, it's like the idea that um, someone who has, doesn't have a trained eye, eye for gold. So if you bring him a nice piece of gold, which is shiny and brilliant, yeah, I'll take it. If you're seeing a piece that looks murky and you can, so say, what's it? Throw it in the garbage. But the goldsmith who understands gold, say, like, what are you throwing away? A gold will say, there's so much good over here. You can just, you gotta, you gotta play with it a little bit. You can just, you know, you gotta melt them a little over here, take this away. And you, you know what this you can turn this into, you know, potential this has. So someone was brought in painting with a broad brush because he goes, yeah, I want to look for something shiny. If I don't see shininess. So from Chachma, there is that ability to allow and to find the potential even in things that look very dark to include that another example the regular religious jewish world was terrified by technology technology it's going to ruin judaism it's going to completely destroy us so we have to lock our doors keep our children safe and keep everything locked away the rebbe said technology is one of the amazing powers that god created in the world and he created for no other reason that we should use it for holiness. So let's embrace the technology and use it the right way. And there's an enormous power. Now everybody's doing it. But when the Rebbe started using ra radio, the rest of the world, radio was a non-kosher thing in this world. Television, non-kosher thing, thing in the world. The Rebbe said, yes, I'm not, I, I'm, the Rebbe screamed about people not having a television. You shouldn't have it because you're bringing in a lot of garbage in your house. You don't need it. Your children don't need it. It's going to cause you to waste your time and it's going to desensitize you. But the fact that there's a power in the world and you can reach millions of people through it, we need to have programming on television. That's really, The Rebbe's Fabrengans used to be on television, which is so revolutionized. Which Rebbe ever did that? Because the Rebbe's Chabad, Chachma. Chachma has an ability to, to go out into what seems at first glance not kosher, not good, unusable, unfit, and find a way out that too fits. Even what which was bad, even that which was bad from the Eitzadas side, even that could be brought into holiness. Now again, I, I don't want anybody making a mistake what I'm saying doesn't mean that if you're not a tzaddik and you're just, I don't know, some kind of an American rabbi who is not really too, too serious about Torah, and then the person decides that, oh, we, I, I heard this class over here. If you can permit everything, I'm just going to go ahead and permit everything. I'm per permitting all types of marriages. 
I'm going to sanction all kinds of things because uh, the, this narrowness is coming from a narrowness, but we bring everything. So every abomination should be brought into, uh, should be accepted. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. It's the only from a very, very, very core inner connection to God and a the highest level of subservience to God's will and not budging one iota from God's will, but the ability to go all the way, all the way in, then we can stretch and find according to Torah when it's okay. But it has to be according to Torah. Can't be ignoring Torah. Then it's then it's an absolute violation. That's not what it's, 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 a, it's a fine differentiation that needs to be made. And that which seemed to be non-kosher and outside could be included in holiness. That it could be it can be included in good. He says, in the realm of, of holiness, you don't need chachma to come there and 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 extend itself to invite it in because it's holy, so it's good. You don't need that fine eye. Over there, there's no bad. It's no big deal to allow uh, a full-fledged, you know, uh, very, very observant fellow into the community. If you're a community, if you're, yeah, everybody can do that. But when a guy comes in and he looks a little bit not like your regular type of guy, you know, and then to be able to see the godly potential in this human being, to be able to see the beauty in this universe, to be able to see the, the pure desire that this person has to get close, to connect, and you can see the potential of how you can, oh, that's all of its story. And to reject that, which is utterly evil of Sitra Achra, the Sitra and the Kedusha, to separate between holiness, to separate between that and holiness, this too you don't need this fine eye. Just like we said in the wisdom of Torah, we don't have to separate with something that is really impure to something that's really pure. The main purification that, that the divine Chachma needs to do where things are mixed, and they're very, very, very fine. The, the mixture is not obvious. Like in the element of Noga, where the mixture is very delicate. So what you could, Chachma could apply itself to dictate that you could purify what seems to otherwise have been impure. In the same way, like we said, in the physical application of rabbis down here, when they discuss Talmudic discussion, the same is also in the spiritual dynamics above. Chachma has the ability that it opens up the door to allow in through the screening process, even things and entities or elements within the, in the cosmos that the regular screeners would would reject before they open up the doors to invite it into holiness. But Chachma is far more expansive and and can differentiate, say that, you pushed it away, you can come in. You, yeah, yeah. The built Gili Oira Chachma, without the revelation of the lights of Chachma, they would not rise from their impure state to the and that's why when Chachma gets involved, what happens? There is great joy in the universe. 
Hariu Hashem Kola Aretz, the entire earth, shout out to God. Shout out to God because many of those that were rejected and sent away and said that you can't enter, you're not, you're not kosher enough, you're, 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 you belong on the outside, you're not invited in to the beat. So the world, so many elements of the world feel rejected. But when Allah comes, when Chachma above opens up the door and selects which the, from that which has been seemingly um, 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 seen as from the dark side and therefore not integratable into holiness, that it selects you can this is except this could be brought in this could be this this entity could be made into a mensch this too could be elevated we were learning about this the other night in the class also Rebbe Gamaliel had a yeshiva in which he had the doors tightly shut and he only allowed he accepted only the elites only those that were no yetzahara to them their inside and their outsides were the same the day Rebbe Loza ben Azariah became the Rosh Hashiva became the Nasi he opened up the door removed the bouncer and allowed everybody in similar to that but over there, it seemed like he allowed everybody. Here we're talking about still a selective process, but a far more lenient selective process to allow so much more in. And as a result of that, there is joy everywhere because ultimately all creations and all beings want to be invited in to have a relationship with God. And that's why shout out to God, the entire earth, which means there is so much more in, in, in the world that is, that is accepted and brought in. That's why the he, the, the the letters are halacha, because that's what halacha does. The true application of halacha is to get into the nitty gritty things that 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 into the very fine into the world of what would generally be considered non kosher and drave, and say this too could be kosher. This too could be kosher. That's the idea. Just like the laws of Torah. Everything that's able to go up gets elevated. Based on Chachma, even though at first glance it seems like it's not fitting. The same is also the spiritual dynamics. They can enter in and be absorbed into the supernal holiness. The divine holiness. Even those that we would have based on our first take, uh, said that they're not fitting. It's like from the the chambers of of Eitzadas, of good and bad. The whole land. Comes to add many. To include even those that are not elevatable without now, the word for shout out, which is the word hariyu, has two meanings. Hariyu means to shout out, but hariyu also means to smash. Because the process of, el of elevating the unavailable, the unelevatable, or what seemingly is unavailable, is not an easy task. You have to really smash its external, the external element of it, its, its presentation, and select the good potential that's in it. That, that, that's the reason why you can't just open the door and let anybody in. Because if you're letting anybody in, it's an awesome danger to let everybody in. Because you're letting in unholy and then you're going to damage everything because the unholy is then going to have power and energy and the whole world is going to be ruined. You can't do that. The strictness, there's a reason for the strictness. So how could you let them in? 
You can let him in by having the ability to see the fine points, extract that, and then reject that which is not good enough. That's the point of it. It's not a free-for-all letting everybody in. It's the ability to finally see, and even in that which we might say is, you know, no hope for this person, you can find the potential good and work on that. But it also requires smashing, meaning breaking off that which is not good and not inviting that in. That's the point of it. Which means to smash with the, with the iron staff. Also means to shout. Now the shouting we understand is the excitement and the shattering is because that's what it takes. It's to break that which is negative in that thing and surgically remove the good. That's the power of Chachma because the Chachma understands things so deeply it can find it can find a kernel of truth that which is hidden even in what appears on the outside to be bad. And this is the meaning of a riyu. It means to break. It's like the taking out the bad from the good. You got to make sure to get rid of the bad. But that's its elevation. Because the good is elevated. So it's both. It's shattering. In the shattering, there is the, there's the song that they are shouting out, it's excited, it's being elevated. Sharia means to shout out in song. And that's why it says, What are they singing to? Who are they shouting out to? Shout out to Chachma. Because until Chachma was engaged, if the if the upper operation mode was only happening from Bina, there was a much greater, stricter protocol. It was a much stronger censorship taking place. The censorship was so strong. The screening is so strong from Bina that mo- so many elements remain rejected because Bina is far more limited. But when Chachma gets involved, and Chachma is called Havaya, remember we said earlier, Bina is Elohim. Elohim is already constriction, symptom. Chachma is still the, 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 the energy in, in its predefined form, and that's Havaya. And that's why Hariu la Havaya color. It's an Ishama la Havaya and the Shema Vaya the Chachma Dafka. Bishop the Machachma is Bidiru through Chachma, there is Bidur. Hakal, Koma Shechelavar, everything that could be elevated, Kinescalia. The Zau is a famous story, it's a beautiful story. I remember it now. Someone once came to Rabbi Yitzhak of Bardichev and he asked Rabbi Yitzhak of Bardichev for a Tikkun erected, that he should give him a remedy, a spiritual remedy for the terrible sin that he's done. And Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Abedichev asked him, what was it? So basically he confessed the sin that he was, uh, he had a, he had sexual relations with this woman. He wasn't married to her. And uh, he said, however, in order to minimize his sin, he said that she went to the mikvah. She purified herself and went to the mikvah, so she was no more, you know, most girls, or most women, single women that are not married, they have no need to go to the mikvah. So usually it's only a married couple, so the woman goes to the mikvah, so she immerses herself, she's kosher for her husband, but the married woman should, an unmarried woman should, should not be having relations only in marriage. So, and when she doesn't go, this girl 
because she wanted to, this guy was kind of semi-religious. He was religious, but he had his issues, you know, he, he just, so he asked her to go to the mikvah for him so she will purify herself from him. And you can't just go to the mikvah, you have to count seven days. So she did the whole preparation. And then when Rabbi Yitzhak heard it, Rabbi Yitzhak said, I don't understand. I understand when someone sins. You know, he said, you think you're making it better by telling me that she went to the mikvah. You really just made it much worse. Because if, you know, it was a spur of the moment, you know, you were together with this girl and suddenly you were overtaken by this intense desire and you fell for your passions. And at that moment, you didn't have clarity of mind and you sinned. Mikvah, no mikvah, prohibition, she's good. At least I can excuse it. It was the hint, it was the heat of the moment. Here it was premeditated. You sat seven days, I have time to think about this. And then you waited the seven days till sin. Your sin is so it's, it's so intentional. It's with so much thought that I can't help you. I believe it's like say, get out of here. I can't help you. There's nothing, you know, you're you're doomed. <laughs> In the end, he went to Liyajna. He went to the altar, the one that we're learning from, right? And he told him a sin, and the Alter Rebbe prescribed him a way of fixing it. So what Rebbe Levi Yitzhak said is unredeemable, the Alter Rebbe was able to fix and to redeem. So then he asked the Alter Rebbe, he came back to the Alter Rebbe, he asked the Alter Rebbe, how come Rebbe Levi Yitzhak Rebbe was a huge tzaddik, he couldn't help me, and you were able to help. So the Alter Rebbe said to him, Rebbe Levi Yitzhak he is the he is the archangel Michael, Michael, who is the because we know Rabbi Yitzchak always was always um, speaking the good of Israel always. So, but he's an angel. He's an, a very high angel, and therefore angels can't tolerate sin. It says it actually in this week's parsha God said, "I'm sending an angel. You got to be careful because he can't tolerate. The angel will tolerate." If I'm going with you, I can tolerate. But this angel can't forgive, so be careful. That's what God tells Moshe. So you see angels, they're intolerant. It says, you're oblivious, I couldn't tolerate. Such an intentional sin. I actually have an oblivious, it's my ditch of spooker on the table over here. It says, but, but the Alter Rebbe, or maybe, uh, maybe but the Alter Rebbe uh, is the, or I don't know if he didn't say it about himself. So who said it? That's the thing, I'm surprised is the minister of Torah. Torah is that level of wisdom. It has that expansiveness. And it can find, even in the most extreme situations, it can find the method of repair. Even when others would say, damaged goods, too late. It's just too... It's like a little doctor, a small doctor, you come to a smaller professor, small doctor, looks at a situation and says, nothing to do. God, go to a higher professor, and the more deeper someone understands, the, the biggest expert can tell you that uh, your situation is not beyond repair. We can try this, we can try that, because, because he knows things on a so much more fundamental core level, he's able to differentiate what looks like to be a a a a, uh, a God forbid a uh, a prognosis that is un unhealable. The bigger the expert is, he has more expansiveness, and this is this idea that the Alter Rebbe is saying from Chachma, even things that are 
Everything is fixed through Chachmah. Now, what is this? So, this is, you know, we'll understand. So, this is now connected to what we learned earlier. Earlier, we were learning how miracles are all about a revelation of Chachmah. Mizma Latoda, that's what we're that's what we're acknowledging. And Chachmah is so high that you can't understand it, you can only surrender to it. And here we're seeing the power of, and just like from Chachma comes miracles, here's the thing, just like from Chachma comes miracles, which change nature, just like Chachma can, that's what a miracle, is that we're not fixed. So in governing the world as well, in terms of the laws, over here Chachma too can change. What seems to be non-kosher could become kosher. And, and that's in a sense like a, a miracle power, because it can transcend systems, and in that sense, it can. But well, as we're going to see in next class, in a miracle, when we're experiencing Chachma, energy, the revelation of Chachma, we don't have the vessels to receive it. So all we can do is surrender to it. All we can do is, as we spoke earlier, submit to it, Dissolve ourselves in it. The beauty of halacha and those who study halacha and those who reach this deep understanding of halacha is that they're tapping chachma energy, but they're understanding it too. In other words, the chachma, as the chachma is above understanding, as the chachma is in its transcendental state, and yet that they're, they're, they're processing in their bina, in their understanding. It's the ultimate marriage of chachma and bina. You have the cake and you can eat it too. And although that which we said before that Chachma always, see, Chachma has a quality that's infinitely bigger and higher and, 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 and truer, so to speak, than Bina is. But the deficiency of Chachma is that it always remains aloof. It always remains above you. You can't, you can't make it part of you. You can surrender to it. You can't grasp. Bina is a much lesser energy, but it's it's, it's assimilatable. The beauty of through halacha is that over here, that's the power of the Torah, is that the emergence of Chachma and Bina is in a way where the Chachma comes down to Bina without the Chachma diminishing its light, and yet the Bina is able to understand it. It's the marriage of finite and infinite together. Where both of them merge together. That's the magic of the Torah. Next week, we'll understand how this all connects to the sacrificial sacrifice of the carbon toda, in which part of this process that we can permit the unpermissible is expressed in the idea that we can allow chametz, leaven, into holiness. Chametz and leaven is the ultimate um, bet, evil. Chametz, it represents inflation, uh, inflation of ego, and so on and so forth, which is so abominable in front of God. And therefore, anything that is that, that that fluffs itself up 
it, you can't bring it into the temple. Don't bring it anywhere close. We only accept matzah Jews. If you're humble and you're, but if you have an inflated self, get out of here. But when you bring the carbon toda, which isn't because it's a revelation of Avaya, and also of Shavuot, as we're going to see in the two breads, and that was the only time that Chometz was allowed. It has to do with this idea that Chachma is so expansive that it's able to include even things when they're still in a state of, of it's still able to in, integrate it and bring it in in a good, in a way that it won't be damaging. That's the idea. As Hashem will finish this next week. Meanwhile, let's have Mashiach come this week so we can finish in the Holy Temple and bring the carbon, the biggest carbon coda of all.